It's Mike, your host of Get the Word, an etymology podcast for word nerds. We'll talk about the history and origin of words in English. If you're coming over from the English sessions, well, then I'll give you an even bigger welcome, loyal listener. The English Sessions is the podcast I've been doing for a while now for English learners and, and is where Get the Word was first conceived. I decided to make Get the Word its own podcast since I started to realize I was making content more for native speakers with these etymology episodes, which seemed to warrant its own feed. Don't worry, though. For those of you who are English learners, there will still be transcripts of the episodes on the website. Look for details in the show notes. Get the Word, an etymology podcast for word nerds. Available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. You are listening to Bisbee Live. I am Mike Butler. Here is my release of my interview with Abdi Noor Ifton, a man who uh, just recently wrote a book called Call Me American, which is a memoir of his experiences in Somalia. Uh, he lived through the Civil War in the 1990s and through strict Sharia law um, under al-Shabaab in the early years of the 21st century. Uh, he also talks about his experiences as a Kenyan refugee and what it took to reach America, which was his dream uh, ever since he was uh, a young boy. Uh, I hope you enjoy this. This was recorded at the Bisbeans and Rice space on Main Street in Bisbee. And uh, I want to thank Carol of Bisbee Books and Music and John and Ben from Biz Beans and Rice. This was a collaboration effort. This will be broken up into two segments for the KBRP radio broadcast. Uh, I will be releasing this in its entirety in one chunk for my podcast, which will be released within the next few weeks. Uh, if you want more information about Abdinor Ifton or of uh, Mama Malyun, which is a woman that we spoke to once we, we reached uh, Phoenix. We did do a little book tour through through Arizona, and we spoke to uh, this woman named Mama Malyun, who is a celebrity within the Somali community with over 100,000 YouTube subscribers to her channel. She's an outspoken feminist voice within the Somali community uh, and an important figure for sure. It was quite an opportunity for Abdi and I to meet her, and it meant a lot to both of us that she she allowed us to, to show up into her home. And uh, she recorded about a half an hour with me for uh, my show. You will hear an edited version of that. The only thing that is edited is uh, chunks that were completely in the Somali language. Uh, just to kind of keep the listener engaged. If you are interested in an unedited raw version of that interview, perhaps you speak Somali, uh, reach out to me at bisbeelive at gmail.com. There will be links to her YouTube channel, uh, to Abdi's great book, and where you can find that at bisbeelive.com and an organization that Mama Malyun talks about 
during the interview, which is a group that's trying to create awareness and to, to generate funds to help with, uh, well, with the issue of female genital mutilation, which is very controversial. I hope uh, no one is offended by the positions that we take on the matter because this is a cultural uh, issue and is deeply rooted in in certain cultures. So here is my interview with Abdi Ifton, uh, and after that, my interview with Mama Malyun. If you KBRP listeners are listening to this, then uh, that part of the interview will be heard in either ne- either next week or the week after that. I appreciate everyone's support. This may be the last release that I that I put out for a while. Um, I am trying to see who is interested in the community and who wants to hear more of uh, my interviews. Again, reach out at bisbylive at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. My name is Mike Butler, and I am here with Abdi Noor Ifton uh, here in uh, downtown Bisbee, Arizona, uh, in the Biz Beans and Rice space. Thank you, John. Thank you, Ben. Um, yeah. And this will be also the audio recording from my podcast. We're streaming uh, live on YouTube. Is that right, Ben? That's right. Okay, awesome. And uh, so I've been promoting this event. If you're from Bisbee, you may have been seeing the flyers, and you may have you may know a little bit about Abdi's story already. Um, and so we're going to talk about his book. It's uh, it's a memoir about his life, and uh, and so. Abdi, let's just start off with um, how long have you been in the United States? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, now it's four years since I've arrived uh, in the United States. Four years. And um, part of your book is after you have arrived in the United States, but the good majority of it is your life in Somalia. Uh, you were born just a few years before the Civil War that happened in 1991. Is that right? That's right. So I'd, I, I'm excited to talk about your book and your life, um, but I want to bring up a few things first. Um, that your book was released back in June. Is that right? And and you've been gaining so much publicity, so much attention. Um, you've been on well, I mean, This American Life focused on your story of your life, um, but since the book has been released, you've been on what CNN. I remember seeing. Uh, um, some footage, and WGBH, um, and you've been doing constant uh, appearances at colleges, right? Book tours all over the country. Um, and I've had the privilege of just spending the past two days with you. We were in Tucson yesterday, and uh, in the past two days, we've talked so much about your life and some some of the harder things that you've gone through mm-hmm. in your life. And I just keep thinking about when you wrote this book, did you expect that it was going to explode? Did you have any idea that it would be the success that it's becoming? And um, is it hard to kind of constantly have to rehash some of these memories? Well, the book uh, is a product of a radio story, uh, a, a, a podcast in This American Life um, uh, called Abdi and the Golden Ticket. So that has become an extremely uh, important story, you know, and a story that opened the eyes and minds of so many people mm-hmm. to those of us who are not 
um, you know, uh, able to have the privilege and, and you know, the, um, uh, the things that many Americans take for granted. So let me take you back to that story. So it's like a one hour documentary and I have uh, clearly uh, spoken about my own story of uh, teaching myself English and, you know, not being able to um, There's a fly to, buzzing around Yeah, to, to go to school, basic schools in Somalia because none of them had ever existed. Uh, so basically what happened was when I'm five years old, the civil war starts and everything kind of falls apart. Uh, and basically, you know, children are following around their mothers and they have no uh, expectations, you know, except to either, you know, either die or survive and then move on. And, you know, that life has become an endless journey um, in, 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 um, in Somalia at the time, uh, in the 90s. And then... Um, um, then the movies arrived, you know, one woman opened a movie theater and, you know, it's, it's not a fancy movie theater, it's like a, sh a shack, you know, made of tin roof. Um, and then there's a little table with a little television sitting on top of the table and she had a, a pile of, of uh, action cassette cassettes that I have I had seen repeatedly American movies American movies that so was your first kind of exposure to American culture exactly right? and that's how how you know it all started uh, the Americanization process part of it um, and then I found myself in the middle of uh, of a chaos you know for example um, American culture is not welcome in the culture where I grew up it's completely the opposite you know you, you can't promote that kind of that kind of a culture you can't bring it and introduce it to the community so what was what I was doing was like I had been programmed by the movies. So I would come back home and start yelling in English with my mother, and then she would try to hash me. Um, I put on portraits of uh, American actresses on the walls in the house. Um, she would tear it off. So everything that I did, you know, just became the opposite. And then it, to me, it became like it's interesting, you know, it's kind of game, you know, kind of um, some sort of a game I'm playing with my mother. You know, I do things and she destroys it and I do things again, she destroys it, but I never knew that this was a journey to a better future. Uh, yeah. But then I realized when I was really able to understand movies much better and much clearer uh, than anybody else, you know, and I was able to say like, oh, he's gonna go and kill the guy, uh, oh, he's gonna go and do something, you know, and, and I could realize what he was doing. Um, and I realized I had that strength in me where I could learn something. You know, doesn't matter, you don't have to have a teacher. So this is part of, you know, something I have discovered. And so uh, throughout time, you know, um, I was uh, eventually uh, kicked out of my country by, by endless wars and uh, extremism, uh, fundamental extremism that arrived in 2006 and I found it completely, you know, I can't blend in. Yeah. The city where I was born, I couldn't, you know, I, I, I became a stranger. I became isolated, you know, I was hiding from, uh, from the guys who took over the city and walking down in the street up and down. Um, and I said, you know, this, I need this life of, you know, the life that you see on the movies, the freedom, uh, the independence, you know, the, uh, the freedom of thinking, you know, the, free, the, the way that people do things. You don't, you know, you don't feel like somebody's pressured upon to do specific things. And so I decided to leave. Um, come to Kenya and register as a refugee and, and even though it's a refugee life, meaning there's not much that you can do uh, except to sit there and wait for your destiny. Uh, right. But I was still, you know, happy that uh, I felt like there was no gunshots happening around and I had been smiling and everything had been fine until again another, you know, attack happens in Kenya by the Somali radical Islamists. Um, and then that's where it all 
starts you know the uh, this american life story and it just became like so you've been through this you survived recruitment you survived warlords in somalia and you come to kenya and then again you are caught up in the same limbo yeah uh but not, not this time not in your own country it's a foreign country so what was the feeling like and the feeling was like crazy because i'm not close to my mother my brother and i were living in one apartment very tiny we used one bathroom with 25 other families so life has already been a disaster Yes, let's let's talk about this. Your your brother and uh, your brother left Somalia uh, years before you did. Is that right? Yep. And he took a different route. Um, did he enter Ethiopia first? No. Uh, so my brother left, and we said goodbye to him in 2004. 2004. So by that time, Somalia was still a. a you know, a, a country run by warlords and reckless militias. So there was no radical Islam at the time. Mm -hmm. So that was like two years before they arrived. So by, so by 2004, um, you know, he could ride, up, uh, ride some sort of a car, you know, across Somalia into Kenya. Um, and that's how he, got, how he got into Kenya. But in my time, 2011, when I left Somalia, uh, the porter of Kenya was completely closed and they were building a wall between Somalia and Kenya because of the radical Islamists' control of the border on the Somali side and they had been penetrating to the Kenyan border and killing the Kenyans. So there was a massive, you know, confrontation and endless wars that was happening around around there at the time. So to me it was extremely deadly um, and a dangerous decision to try and um, you tried to you tried a few different times, right? There was a at least one failed attempt that I remember reading. Mm -hmm. Um and that was a different route. Were you heading toward Kenya uh, then too, or were you heading north to try to go um, over the sea? I remember I, the story. Yeah. yeah, I didn't try Kenya. I tried twice to go across the ocean, the Gulf of Aden, Gulf of in, Aden. into okay. Yemen. And uh, it costed about $80, you know, to, try, to, to get on a, on, on a boat, um, travel from, from Somalia, and it's probably a couple hours across the Gulf of Aden to get into Yemen. Mm -hmm. uh, so that amount of money was, uh, was extremely uh, unaffordable. You know, it was a lot of money and I, I, I hustled, I worked for a uh, couple months and I was only able to collect $50 and I couldn't afford $30. $30. So mm -hmm. my attempt, and I talk about this in detail in the book, um, I you know, went all the way up to this place called Bosaso where people ride boats and you can't believe there's a long line of young young people displacing and pouring themselves into the ocean so people who are smuggling us into the middle east you know because yemen is part of that you know asian countries yeah. um so people who were smuggling us to do this dangerous uh journey across the ocean were somali pirates Mm. So they're pirates, you know, they're brutal, they're, they're already reckless. Yeah. Um, but then they run this business, you know, they hijack ships, but at the same time they charge us $80, everyone, um, and then they put us on a pretty tiny... They were putting uh, way too many people. Yeah, yeah, I mean the boat could probably fit 25 people, but they put 100 people, they don't care. Uh, so the chances of surviving was not really that high. Because, for example, um, I waved goodbye to two friends of mine and they both uh, ported, ported. They went to, on uh, the boat that you would have gone on if you had enough money. Is right. that what you say in the book? Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, that's that's entirely where the story, you know, my story comes to. Because I say goodbye, and you know, in the middle of the journey, the boat capsizes, and my friend and his kids and his wife 
drone. So they died. They didn't, they didn't make it. They didn't make Yemen. it. Uh, yeah. And then the second boat, I say goodbye to the friends and they survive. You know, it's just like, that's mm, what life okay. is like. So it's either, you know, survive or die. Um, so did that scare me at all? I knew that friends died. It did not scare me because what existed, the life that existed at the time uh, in Somalia was extremely, you know, dangerous and I could not stand. So I decided to just do this journey. But when I realized that I couldn't afford 30 extra dollars, I had to move back in the heart of the uh, 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 stronghold of the radical uh, Islamist group called Al Shabaab. Yeah. It was really, really dangerous. Yeah. And you did eventually uh, leave Somalia. And from what I could gather from your book, learning the English language helped you immensely. Um, in many ways, I mean, there was one way that you were able to make money because mm -hmm. um, you were teaching. It was allowed for you to teach English in Somalia while you were still there. Um, you talk about how just to be on the safe side, you focused on, you know, teachings from the Quran, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of, um, you know, anything else that could even be associated with Western culture at all. Mm -hmm. It was a safer bet um, mm -hmm. when you were teaching English. Mm -hmm. And you also mentioned at one point there was an embedded journalist and i think you said yesterday around that time the only embedded journalist in somalia um and can you can you tell that story right now um to our listeners um how did you see him how did you know and um maybe talk about the kind of danger and the the risk that you took trying to reach out to this man so um, this was uh, in the summer of 2008, okay. right? And the things that you can smell in Mogadishu, this, the city where I lived at the time, you could smell the blood of people. You know, you could smell the powder of a gang, you know, and uh, you can see shoes and clothes thrown all over the place because so many people have been dying from constant shelling, constant wars. So the city had actually become um, what's Aleppo, you know, Aleppo in Syria, and that's, you know, we watched those sort of uh, crazy destruction that happened in that city. Yeah. But Mogadishu had been destroyed more than 10 times than Aleppo. So it was like you could not see a single building that was actually uh, sticking up from, from the ground. Um, Paul, this American journalist who's extremely risk taker, had actually, and his, that was his job, of course, to go to war zones and, you know, uh, bring stories. What is his full name? Uh, Paul Salopek is, okay. is his full name. Uh, he worked for many different things, but at the time, he worked for the Chicago Tribune. Um, and today he works for National Geographic. Um, so he comes to the city, yeah. you know, and he has um, uh, a bullet vest and, you know, some sort of a hard hat. Bulletproof uh, vest bulletproof, to prevent yeah, yeah to prevent from Trump from gunshots. Yeah. Well, sure. while he looks like that, while he has you know help you know a some sort of a hard hat, of course bulletproof I think, mm. and a vest you know bulletproof uh, vest. Um, but he had ten bodyguards that were like ahead of him several feet, so they were walking dangerously, while he actually took pictures around the area. Um, I approached him, you know. Um, waved and yelled in English, you know. It took a lot of guts. It took a lot of guts. Yeah. They could have easily shot me, 
you know, by thinking I was going to blow myself up or something like that, yeah. because at the time you could not trust anybody in that mm-hmm. city. It was extremely, you can trust your own, your own cousin. You know, people had been programmed, people had been shifting from, switching from one ideology to another ideology, but then the most interesting ideology at the time was the radicalization process. You know, people have been really moving to that, you know, kind of, you know, diverting to that area. And, you know, you could see so many mothers just looking around saying like, oh, my child has, uh, you know, joined them. So that was what was happening at the time. So it was extremely dangerous. And Paul knew this and he couldn't trust anybody. Yeah. However, I really gathered all the courage that I could to speak English, not Arabic, because Al Shabaab speak Arabic, yeah. but I spoke English. And I said, hey, I want to talk to you, you know, and, and while his bodyguards all pointed their AK-47 up on my face, um, he just, you know, shuffled around. He said, let him come in. They searched me, you know, just in case I had any weapons or anything. Um, so they got, you know, I got in and I talked to Paul. Yeah. Um, and that was one opportunity that I, I had, one like tiny crack of, you know, of an opportunity where I said, this is it. I need to unleash all my frustration to this man mm-hmm. because he's a male man. You can, he can carry my story back to the United States or to, you know, to the world and put it in a paper yeah. so that people can really read what exactly is happening in Mogadishu. And, you know, because nobody knew, like we didn't have any journalists who were telling this story. And Paul, with his bodyguards, had nobody to talk to. And him. was probably just so, kind of waiting for someone like you. He was. He spoke English so he's, well, there wasn't he a says language he's, Yeah, he says he's still so lucky to just find me. And I'm like, I'm lucky to find you. So we both the helped world each other. was lucky to, that, that right. whole interaction happened. Right, right. Yeah, the entire world was so lucky. Um, and then uh, he said, good luck. You know, I'm going to go back and tell your story. So he moved back, uh, published the story, uh, and the story went viral. Um, NPR fo- read it and found it and contacted me. And then it kind of, you know, kind of exploded from there yeah. where I became a, uh, a war correspondent. You know, someone who's a correspondent, but not a professional correspondent, but yeah. living at war, you know, war zone reporting my own stories and uh, that had uh, th- those stories had been aired uh, many times and eventually because of all this um, uh, publicity that you're getting um, uh, or just attention uh, eventually a, a group of journalists um, this this family in uh, Maine mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people from the West from America um, created Team Abdi. Mm-hmm. So can you talk about Team Abdi and, and what they did for it to help you to um, to get out of Somalia? So Team Abdi uh, is a group of seven people and they, it, it all began from one woman. Uh, her name was Sharon McDonald. Um, and Sharon lives in Yarmouth, Maine. And uh, she heard my stories, you know, the war correspondence series that I had been um, reporting to, to NPR and she heard uh, the first, you know, uh, episode and she just said she cried. And one of the reasons she cried was uh, uh, Sharon is a doc, she's an epidemiologist. So when the United States invaded Afghanistan, she volunteered to go and help the local communities. And she had seen uh, with, her own, with her own eyes, you know, firsthand experience of what life looks like for young people who live in a war zone. Um, so she kind of compared the Afghanistan 
war situation to what I was talking about. And she said, he speaks pretty good English. He seems like he has, you know, faith um, in what he needs to do in the future. And he needs, he, he's the right guy that we need to save. Yeah. So she contacted all her friends. They came together and built, built Team Abdi. And Team Abdi um, sent all kinds of support letters and encouraging letters to their senators, including Bernie Sanders. Including Bernie time. Sanders. Yep. Yes, in, in We've Vermont. We've been talking a lot about Bernie in the past couple of days. Exactly. Yeah. Um, that was, uh, so yeah, that was 2009 and 2010, and I had no idea who Bernie Sanders was. <laughs> yeah. um, and however, uh, it, you know, it, it just, it, they become really strong team. I mean, no, to me, I was just a little bit confused. It's just like, you know, we have no, nothing in common. You know, these are white American people and non-Muslims, you know, and don't understand our culture, but they are out there to say, we're gonna save this man who they have never met. Yes. Yeah. So they, you know, it's, it's still, to me, unbelievable how they put their trust in me. Mm -hmm. It's hard to trust people. Around that time, you know, it's really, really hard to trust people. So I would say it's a miracle, you know, how, you know, they heard my story and they just decided to contribute and get me out of Somalia um, and bring me to Kenya. And then that was chapter number one. And then when I came to Kenya, another chapter opened up where Team Abdi uh, did not scatter. They stayed together and they said, let's have our eyes on him. Because you weren't necessarily very safe there. You, you touched on this a little bit earlier. Mm -hmm. So you and your brother were living in a neighborhood of Nairobi mm -hmm. um, called Little Mogadishu, right? So this is where all of the, re or a lot of the refugees from Somalia were going. N none of you were allowed to work, mm -hmm. right? So you, 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 you say in the book how you and your brother um, kind of had a, a business, street business, selling socks and underwear, was it, on the street? Yeah, we sold all, all types of things, you know? Yeah, with, yeah we sold underwear as well. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we were refugees. So here, mm -hmm. here's the interesting mm -hmm. part of it because Kenya uh, hosts the largest refugees in the world. It's like we're talking about half a million people, specifically from Somalia. Of course, other nations, but the large majority, like 90% of the refugees in Kenya, are Somalis. And Kenya has the largest refugee camp in the world called the Dahab. So my brother and I lived there uh, for. Well, he lived there first and then he moved to the city because it's like, you can't... So let's, let me describe this as Arizona, okay? Um, see how dry and arid it is sometimes somewhere in Arizona? Mm -hmm. Would you live in, those, in that type of environment if someone builds a, like, a makeshift sticks and you know, made of cardboard and stuff like that covered on top? Yeah, can you hard. just live? It's so hot and humid. Yeah. And so many people died, they couldn't even breathe. So that was the type of life that exists in the refugee camp. Um, so the Kenyans gave us two options. They said, if you're in the camps, we're gonna provide food and water to you once a week. Once a week. If you move from the refugee camps and you know, bring yourself into the cities, we're not gonna give you any single assistance. You get to find yourself food, apartment, stuff like that. So my brother and I became urban refugees. We came to the city because the city has some sort of a life. You know, it's a city, you know, there's so many people, there are buildings, there are businesses. That's one of the reasons that we sold, even though we're refugees, we sold underwear, socks, hats, gloves, all the things, umbrellas, yeah, all the things that you can, 
you know, easily find it. And it was illegal. You know, the business was illegal because the can police didn't want, you know, people to carry, you know, things that they sell and stick it into the buses so but people can give us some cash and, you know, we can hand them. So it was some sort of a business where, like, I had to look on both ends every single time, make sure that the cops were not coming. And then whenever I saw the police, I throw everything and dashed out. Yeah. So it wasn't always successful. It was uh, quite a big of, uh, of, uh, of a struggle. Um, uh, but however, it was, you know, I wasn't really dying and I wasn't being shot in the head. And so that part of it was like, oh, thank God, you know, at least. And then the other part was like, what, what's the future? Where am I going to go from here? You know, do I, will I, is this my life? You know, am I going to end uh, the entire, like my entire future selling socks and selling hats and right. being a refugee? Like in, if you're in Kenya for 25 years, you're not going to be a citizen. Refugee life is permanent, just permanent. You're not, you know, you're not gonna go anywhere from there. Um, so well, it's so you, hard. You mentioned um, that at one point there were, um, and I think you touched on this a little bit already, but attacks from Al-Shabaab happening in Kenya to the point where, I mean, you couldn't be on the streets, right? Mm -hmm. Like if um, the Kenyans, they, I mean, you would be rounded up because they would know that you were Somali. Um, a lot of the times you got out of it from bribes, um, but you also mentioned how there would be days, weeks, right, where you and your brother um, were pretty much hiding in your home in Mogadishu, little Mogadishu, the neighborhood, um, which was pretty much cleared out, if, if, if what I remember correct, you mm -hmm. know, if that's what I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. um, you weren't supposed to be there, you were allowed to be there because you've been giving bribes, but still were kind of in hiding. Um, so I imagine at that point, like, like you couldn't even sell socks on the street, right? The streets were being cleared out, um, and you knew you had to leave. Um, the, I, just in the past two days, um, I did learn that your brother is on his way to North America mm -hmm. eventually, but he is he still in Lo Little Mogadishu right now, and have things gotten any better? Uh, where you left off in your book? He, he still is in, in Little Mogadishu, and uh, he... Uh, um, Things, ha things are not really as, as hard as they were when I left uh, because now there's not a lot of uh, police crackdown in where he lives, but there's still the bribery part of it. Um, so since I left, he had been handcuffed uh, more than 25 times and he had to bail himself out. And uh, even though he's not a criminal, he hasn't done a single crime, but that's it. The refugee, the word refugee in, to the Kenyan police means a crime. Hmm. So that's one of the reasons that they can easily come, like, you know, catch up with you and handcuff you. So it, you know, it just become normal. Um, so they came up with a nickname for the Somalis, and that nickname is the ATM machine. See what I mean? Hmm. Like, if you have a bank card, you can go to the ATM and withdraw money. So that they, they come to the Somali neighborhood to, to, with, to take money from from us, you know, from, from my brother, from his wife, from his friends, you know, the um, thousands of other refugees that live, that live in the area. So they call us the ATM machine, which is interesting. It's like, uh, let's say my brother sells socks and hats and stuff like that on the streets. So he's out there in the sun all day from six to six. And now he has some money to buy milk, grain, um, some vegetable for his wife and, and, and the kids. Sometimes what happens is all the money that he had worked goes to the police. Mm. 
Mm -hmm. So he comes home empty-handed, and he, his kids are gonna go to sleep. We're not eating tonight, pretty much. We're not eating tonight. Yeah. So when those type of things happen, he calls me and and you know says it's horrible. So I financially support him by sending him, let's say, hundred dollars, and he would save that hundred dollars in the house. He wouldn't bring it with him mm -hmm. uh, because he knows sometimes all the money that he works are gone. So when when sometimes he gets bribed, he gets uh, robbed, and he loses all the money. He comes to the house and tells his wife, I don't have anything with me, but I'm going to take some cash and go and buy some things. So can you imagine that kind of life? No. See what I mean? Not at all. So see, yeah. see all the privilege and the good things that we have in this country. You know, yeah. sometimes when I see myself complaining about some things, I remind myself, look back, man. You know, what you have been through was intolerable. I mean, it, because it's so vivid in my mind. You know, I, I was a very full grown-up man when I had seen all these experiences. And I look back and I say, everything that happens in the US just means nothing, you know, compared to what, yeah. what I have seen. I mean, what do we complain about here? Uh, when your cell phone doesn't work and it's, there you go, there you go, like I don't have a service. Wi-Fi isn't strong or? Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. You know, or your car breaks down inside of the street and you're so mad and you have money in your bank, you know, it's, it's like all these things, you know, put, put some smile on my face. It's like, we really have a great thing. So that's the, the true story of an immigrant, you know what I mean? It's just like, we have seen those, we can really deal with this and we can move on. You know, we're not gonna give up, we're not gonna go to drags and stuff like that because we're suffering. You know, it's like, we, we, we have suffered enough that anything that comes, we can deal with it. And that's one of the most successful things, I think, to just like be able to really handle some hard times, you know, when hard times come, um, you need to be able to, you know, to take care of it. So that was part of my story as well, where like lots of things happened. I didn't, you know, I didn't give up. I wasn't disappointed, so I moved on. We're speaking with Abdi Noor Iftin. His, his book is called Call Me American. Um, and I want to talk uh, about your experiences since you've been in uni the United States. Um, you're living in Maine, um, and I'm just so curious, since you, you speak English so well, you knew you had this opportunity to be able to write a book um, in English, um, and you did have someone, a collaborator, uh, with you who is a native English speaker, but these are your words, um, and it's so well written. I mean, it's such, it's such a serious, I mean, journey topic that that you know your life but you you there are moments where i found myself laughing i mean you you inject humor um have you ever taken writing classes i mean did you just know that you were going to write a book that was well written or was that even a surprise to you no i i didn't i didn't take any writing classes so basically this is a memoir it's my story um so at some point point uh because i'm a really good storyteller you know right. I, uh, I i this is uh my mother was a pretty good storyteller and i think that's where it comes from um and it's basically you know i, I spoke at universities and high schools and across the country so and i was able to describe events vividly you know and just remember moments and uh and you know these the struggles the different uh, episodes of my life um in your well, third language. Would you say Arabic is your second language? Right, Arabic is yeah. my second language. So English, it, well, English is, of course, a strange language to write because I, I, I never went to school to study English. 
uh, this whole English experience that I have comes from movies and then radio and then you know when I came to Kenya I had access to books and read a lot of and interestingly enough one of the books that I read and enjoyed was uh, uh, The Art of the Deal that's right uh, yeah. and this was uh, 2000 don't get me wrong this was 2013 way before the guy became president and now I'm not that you know you've learned <laughs> a lot more about Donald Trump uh, I did, I did. Um, you know, I, I, I thought he was a successful man. I mean, that, that was, that's how I saw America. It's just like it, America produces successful guys like this guy, you know. Mm -hmm. And that way I had no idea his political affiliation or anything like that. I just found everything that is produced in America to be as, as an awesome thing. For example, I liked the Eddie Murphy movies. Mm -hmm. I also liked Jack Norris movies. Yeah, you know Arnold Schwarzenegger. Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know, all, you these, a lot all these type of things. And now I realize I come here. Arnold, Arnold, and Donald are not friends. Mm -hmm. They throw in the, it's just like, oh, America, man, you know? It's like <laughs> two guys, I thought I like them so much because one guy wrote a book, one guy makes movies, and all that. So anyways, um, um, the hardest part of, of writing the book was uh, I had all these stories in my head in, in Somali, you know, it's, it's a, I had to do a translation. Um, so the feelings kind of flow down from my from my you know my memories into uh, into writing. Uh, so at some point I wrote in Somali first, and then translated into English. You know that way that I had you know I could write my feelings exactly the way it was, and then write it in English the way it was. Um, so it was hard. It was really hard. You know translating all those kind of feelings into from a native language into a, an adopted language. So there is a Somali version. Um, we in the past two days we, we've been talking about um, there 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 was a a book fair in Somalia, and your your book was a big success, um, and I was congratulating you on that. Um, was it the number one, you know, biggest seller at the at the book it, fair? It, yeah, it is. It is, yeah. and it, it's still on on Amazon. It's uh, if if you're you know if you're just asking Amazon recommend a book that I should read to go to Somalia, they would uh, you know call ask uh, um, they would recommend my book uh, Call Me American. Uh, because it basically basically describes cities, towns, the distances, life, the weather, you know, all those sort of things that you can imagine. And as far as I know, there are only few books that were ever written so vividly, so descriptive um, about the Somali culture and the Somali issues that are happening and the contemporary Somalis as well and all, all those sort of things. Period, let alone in English. For, yeah. you know, yeah. which we, we've been talking a lot about this. I'm an I'm a English teacher. You know, English has become the global language of business and travel and just commu communication. But correct me if I'm wrong. I think you said that there are not printed copies of the book in Somalia. Ah, uh, no, no. It, well, it's because my my book was was a uh, was published by uh, by a, a big publisher, Knob, and. Uh, you know, we discussed the marketing and, you know, all those sort of stuff. So we had plans for Europe and Canada and United States. So we're looking at, like, if we send copies to Somalia, who's going to buy the book, right? Not many people are going to buy the book. It's not written in Somali. So it's, it's a complex English. You know, it's like Somalis don't speak English. You know, if it was Arabic, that might have been, you know, a reason to really sell it. Uh, but from the perspective of my publisher and from my perspective, if we send copies, we must sell the copies. Mm -hmm. So basically, we 
you know, first of all, Somalia doesn't have a mailing system, you know, nothing. Like, how do you really send books? So you have somehow to end up hiring an, an airplane or something, and then it's a tough process and have to send this, so it would cost a lot of money. Um, people can't buy from Amazon my book and get delivered to their houses because Somalia, like I said, is a, is a collapsed country. It yeah. doesn't exist anymore. Uh, the book fair that happened in Mogadishu was created by a young, young man from, from the United Kingdom. Um, and he, he brought forward books that were locally written in Somali by some Somalis uh, with, with their experiences, not as, you know, um, it's some, written in Somali, but it's still like two chapters and three chapters and people describing specific events and stuff like that. So it just became a book fair. But my book was uh, really a hit, a big deal, um, even though people haven't even read it. But it just still became like, you know, one of, one of the books that actually, you, you know, people buy to understand more about Somalia. But there's, so is there or is there not a Somali version mm -hmm. that was published and printed? Nope. Or do you, so you just when you so you were saying you were just writing in your own native language to help the creative juices flowing, mm -hmm. but that wasn't published. No, no, that wasn't. But I still have the uh, draft of of the Somali version. Uh, really? It's not a, yeah, it's not as complete as English. Uh, I have that, and I haven't published it. And you know, I will do it at some point, but you not will? not now. Yeah, I will do it because people have to read the story in Somali. And uh, that might be, you know, in the future. Yeah. We never know. Well, you told um, me some of the future uh, plans. I mean, there's talk about a movie version, mm -hmm. right? You said three different filmmakers mm -hmm. are interested. Mm -hmm. um, we have, a, uh, and, and also a, a children's version, mm -hmm. right? We don't have a lot of details right now about mm -hmm. that, though. Mm -hmm. um, but we do have an online question that says, um, uh, what what could not be translated effectively? Is that the question, Ben? Yeah, from Somali to English, because you know, semantically it's you know it's impossible. Someone just asked, what couldn't you tell in English that you can tell in Somali? It's different. You were just it's telling me today um, about about that. So the differences in language and how it's expressed. Whether you were effectively able to, right. to still say it. Right, right. Um, so, first of all, let, you know, let's think about this because I, of course, I speak English and I speak English really very well, but I speak my native even much, much better and much <laughs> fluent. Um, so the things that was really, really hard to translate was was the feeling, you know, the feeling. Um, and what I say, like, what just let's let's say, for example, I, you know, I was I was just trying to to write down. Um, I was on the phone with my mother, and she says, you know, it's, um, she says she misses our animals in, in the wild, you know, in, in, the, in, the, in the nomadic nomadic life, and then she describes the smell, hmm. and then I have the smell in front of me when she describes hmm. that, and then she, des she describes, you know, um, the, um, the, the type of plants that, um, that she used to, um, you know, um, treat her wounds, you know, and and then she would be humming her favorite uh, songs for for the animals, you know, and so I'm trying to like translate that feeling that's coming into me as a Somali nomad um, into an American 
uh, in English to just try to explain it to the Americans. You like, um, like if you're in Arizona, you may probably feel as like in Somalia, it's pretty hot and dry, and you know it's desert, and there's my mother just you know bare feet walking down the street, um, and then at some point she rests under the acacia tree and then pulls up all these plants and treats herself and smells the goat, you know, the goat pee and. And that you know that sort of a that sort of a feeling it's like you know I just want to translate that that into English in a way that people um, can actually understand and feel yeah and do you feel I mean some of the nuance that you could have with your own native language um, were you able to accomplish that in the um, English version because you, you you mentioned this man uh, Max uh, what's his full name uh, Alexander Max Alexander mm -hmm. um, was a great collaborator. Um, could you talk about him a little bit and how he maybe helped you to fill in some of these, um, you know, gaps that were there? Well, Max is a, is a successful writer, um, and he has uh, he's he's lived in Ghana, Africa, for for a little while, and he understands African culture. He had observed, you know, and lived through it and understands it. So he was a great, really, man who could. Uh, bridge the gap of when I really want to describe things in a way that he could, you know, tell me that that this is how you can describe it. So he was kind of fixing it um, and helping me around that. Uh, but it's entirely my English. It's entirely yeah. the words that came out of my mind. Yeah, and I can tell just from the past couple of days of spending, you know, spending time with you. Mm -hmm. You are a great storyteller. You come from a nomadic family, and that's like a way of life for them, um, telling stories. You know, uh, oral mm -hmm. tradition. Um, if, we, if you don't mind, if we could backtrack a little bit, um, I mentioned the Civil War, and since we're talking about different tribes uh, in Somalia, you, your family comes from the Rahanwen, mm -hmm. am I close? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and th uh, these people, uh, when your family came to Mogadishu, this was before the Civil War, mm -hmm. they were even kind of the outsiders then. Right. Um, so. Can you talk about your your family's experiences when they first arrived to Mogadishu? Um, it must have been such a change for your for your mother and father mm -hmm. from going from the nomad life to the big city mm -hmm. kind of. Mm -hmm. So there were uh, my my mother, you know, grew up in a nomadic culture, and and the typical nomadic culture in Somalia is like there's no permanent um, there's no permanent residence, like they don't have a place that they stayed throughout the year, so they kept moving around. And she and her family called uh, where they lived the land of God. You know, it's just like no man owns this land. You know, like in America, you say this is my property, or this is my property, or this is Mike's property, or that's John's property. So in her world, that did not exist. She could go 200 miles deep into Somalia, and sometimes very close to the Ethiopian border with her animals, and then she would just wander around and you know uh, whenever they you know they kept they they chased the clouds you know when the clouds went south they followed them because you know a rain in somalia is an extremely prosperous thing and something to be very happy for um and that's what they have been trying so her entire world was like that and my dad was just pretty much the same so accidentally um one day they pumped into each other you know his camels come Pretty close to the goats, and they find each other, and they that's say that's how they met. That's how they and met. They're both wandering nomadic. They're, they're both wandering nomadic. They're both from the Rahanwain mm -hmm. tribe, but different 
packs, we could say, I guess? Uh, they're both from the Rangan tribe, but uh, different subsects, you know. Mm -hmm. And But they both spoke the dialect, the Mai dialect. And he said hi, you know, and they, they, they continued talking a little bit, and then they didn't find each other for a while, and then reunited again. And that was the moment that, you know, my dad felt like, you know, I, I think he was 17 or something like that. And, mm -hmm. and he, he thought he was too old, uh, you know, uh, and he needed to marry as, as quickly and, you know, as he could because that's a nomadic culture. Here she was like 14. Here we are, 30s who aren't married. I know. I can't yeah, imagine can you, marrying can you believe that. that? I'm, I'm, I'm a product of a nomadic uh, family and my mother yells at me every day because I'm over 30 Why now. Why she married? Yeah. Why did I not marry it exactly? But she was 14 and he was probably around 17. Um, and then they arranged it and had a beautiful, amazing, you know, wedding and hat, you know, and they deposited goats. Um, you know, to stay in that uh, nicely decorated and furnished hat. Um, and then once their, uh, you know, wedding ended and they had a little bit of a time to celebrate around and follow their animals and they co-joined their, their, their animals together. And 1977-78, you know, uh, a, a famine had arrived in Somalia and it was a very bad one. You know, it, it was brutal and it it wiped out their animals. Um, it killed people as well, and it got so close to them, and they decided, let's walk, you know, uh, south, and they walked all the way and ended up coming to the city, Mogadishu. Hmm. And the city had wells and water and stuff like that, and so it was easy for my dad to just start fishing, um, make a little bit of money, and, you know, and, and because of his height and how, you know, nomadic, muscly, and could jump so high as he could, so he was able to be recruited into the national basketball. That's right. Uh, yeah. yeah. He was uh, a basketball star in he Somalia, pretty He much, became right? a basketball star, and he made a lot of money and became famous, and everybody knew him, and, hmm. and, and then again, he built a beautiful life and found a house, and uh, mom became a, you know, uh, he, she became a housewife. Yeah. Um, she had my brother, she had me, she had my sister, it's been going great. You know, he would come home on Fridays uh, as a weekend and, uh, and stayed, you know, overnight. And every time he came home, he brought a lot of good stuff to mom, jewelry, rings, and so many good things that she had decorated herself with. That entire beauty had been destroyed uh, by the Civil War in 1991. Mm. Everything was gone. House, friends, family, neighbors, you know just became a disaster beginning from there. I talk about it in my book, uh, First Bullet, you know, how at the age of six, I walked bare feet for miles and miles and miles and, you know, nothing in my belly and for weeks, weeks, you know, and watched little kids die um, and how mom was just a strong nomadic woman and saved my life, you know, you know, picking me up when she can and trying to get us, uh, she, I remember her saying like, uh, hunker down, you know, just, you know, lower your head down, there's some militias coming on, she would just shush, um, she would chase down uh, wildlife, you know, hyenas and lions, so hungry, because they didn't have anything to eat, they could eat us, you know, so it was dangerous. And your, your mother coming from that, that no, nomadic um, background, yeah. if maybe she, if she was a city woman, kind of, you know, and she grew up that way, perhaps none of you would have survived. Uh, um, no. If she didn't have those skills of being out in the... Yeah, you know, yeah, I, I don't think I would be sitting here talking to you today. And um, you did have to eventually return to Mogadishu. You did lose a sister um, during that period in the famine mm. um, that you never really got to, to know too well. She was very young, mm. right? Just a baby. 
Mm. Um, but you did um, lose some of your family, and um, that's that's once you return to Mogadishu. Um, and I want to mention something very specific, and it's it's about how um, the militiamen were taking over the city, and they, these were young kids. You said like 15 to 20 years old, right? And there are so many times, I marked every single time, I think, in the book when you mentioned a drug called CAT. Is that how you pronounce it? Mm -hmm. Q-A-T? Yep. And I started to think that th this must have, there must be some significance here because you mentioned it so much. How much of a role do you think this CAT drug played on um, the Civil War? Like, to, to fuel these, these young mm -hmm. militia kids that, I mean, right. could you say something about that? Right. Um, so the, the, the cat uh, is, is, uh, is extremely um, addicting. You know, if you eat one leaf, you just need a lot. Um, so what happened, uh, it's a stimulant one. You, you chew it and you're like, your mind goes out of the war and into like a kind of Different, like you have another planet kind of could you, know, you compare sort of, it to maybe something like methamphetamines yeah i would say it's the same like that's why it's illegal in the united states you can't bring cat to this country because they know how extremely uh uh you know stimulant it can be yeah um so for the somali militias with all the stress you know you know because it's, it's a militia you know they can expect a gunfight anytime an ambush anytime so i think it was it kind of kept them motivated it kind of kept them awake and watchful, um, <laughs> and uh, they drew that. Uh, sometimes it, they made, you know, the, the thing made them so lazy that you could see them, you know, falling up and down and, you know, just walking around. Oh, like once they ran out of it? Yeah, they once, once they ran out of it. Much. Yeah, it just completely takes down their, their entire energy. So for, for my brother and I, we, we created a business by, you know, following them around and when they drop leaves, we could steal that and sell it to other militias uh, with, you know, some cash and so that and we could buy milk and food for our family. Yeah. Uh, so this drag, the cat, um, I would say almost entirely 85% of Somali men and probably 35% of Somali women eat, you know, or chew. Oh, it's Greenland. Yeah, okay. yeah. It's also, um, I think Yemen is the only country that's way ahead of us. Uh, but Somalia is actually the second largest country that, um, you know, they use the cat and it does not grow in Somalia. It grows in Kenya, but the Kenyans don't chew it. They don't chew it? They don't. It grows in Ethiopia and Ethiopians don't chew it. They hmm. just, you know, load it into Somalia and they, they get a lot of revenue from this. So basically what hmm. I'm saying is, uh, for the Somalis who are in the U.S., they send money back to, to their fathers and brothers and the fathers and brothers go to buy a cat. So the dollar that they send to Somalia eventually goes to Ethiopia's revenue and Kenya's revenue. So we're building their economy hmm. and we're destroying our economy by eating that, you know, green, green cat. And I've been very advocate, you know, and against it and, you know, walking around. My dad chews it. Uh, he's never going to stop it. Uh, that's one of the reasons that, you know, it just frustrates me. It's like, you know, dad, I'm going to send you money, but please don't do that. But he's probably addicted. He's addicted. Right, this is yeah. probably highly addicting. He's addicted. You are an advocate and you're a voice for um, Somalia um, that the world is paying attention to because you're, you're writing in English, you know. We're meeting some woman tonight, I don't know if you, you feel like mentioning her name, um, and she is a very significant uh, person 
um, women's rights activist within the Somali community. We're, mm -hmm. we're going uh, back up to Phoenix to meet with her. Mm -hmm. um, but she does not speak English. Mm -hmm. um, and I imagine this is part of the reason why she wants to talk with you. You're reaching a different audience. Mm -hmm. um, we could talk about her if you want. It's up to you. Um, but I want to make sure that we talk about, I, I believe in the book you just call it female circumcision, also known as female genital mutilation. Um, can you talk about how prevalent that is still is in the Somali culture and the problems that come out of that and what we can do if there are any groups out there that are, you know, that people can help, um, you know, maybe that, that are going there and trying to spread awareness of um, this issue? Uh, the FGM is, uh, is prevalent. It's everywhere. If everywhere in Somalia, it's it's part of a culture. It's uh you know if if the girl is not circumcised, she's considered as un impure, you know devilish feelings and stuff like that. So they have to to do the circumcision on on the daughters and you know and I talk about it. My mother going through that as a grown up woman after she married my dad and coming to the city. So the city culture is is actually the one that's encouraging that. Mm. Um, um, circumcision and Somali, the nomad culture, they don't have sisters or anything like that to practice that. So they're just walking all the time. So they don't have time for that. But the city people who are just actually around, you know, sitting in the area and have uh, have access to all the tools that they can, they, you know, practice uh, an exercise uh, circumcision. Um, it's an issue, you know, so many Somalis think this is a taboo. No one, you know, no one is allowed to talk about it. You know, they are like, this is not something that we need to bring, to bring up, because it's our culture, and we don't want to stop this. <laughs> and there is those just like me, who grew up learning other cultures. You know, and I look at America, I look at other people, and I see how, you know, the way we treat women, is definitely not what it's supposed to be. You know, you don't have, you know, to, to make her suffer by, you know, cutting down all her feelings. And then eventually she's not gonna be able to get married to a man and, you know, go into bed with him. She can't, you know, she's having a hard time every time, you know, that she's using the bathroom, you know, all this stuff. So it's a horrible practice uh, that's prevalent in many countries. And Somalia is, I would say, countries that practice this and they don't have the choice, it happens to them. Um, There's no choice, yeah, because the, the girls are circumcised at the age of five or at so. At the age of five. And um, just in case our listeners are curious, um, I, I did some research on what that entails. It's pretty much, you're removing pretty much all of the external parts of the vaginal area. Mm -hmm. Is that what you would say? Like mm -hmm. everything yep. that's out there, yep. they're just cutting right <laughs> off. So very different than um, like a male circumcision. Which, you know, I, I definitely know some people who are anti-male circumcisions, but, um, you know, there's certain beliefs, you know, it's for cleanliness or whatever. Um, and that, I mean, tradition is a big part of uh, male circumcision too, but this is not good, right? The, the, the female genital mutilation, removing all those areas, it's not for cleanliness. It's, it creates problems, right? Mm -hmm. and so many problems. Yeah. So many problems. Okay. And... And just the main reason then is because in the culture it's considered unclean or like what you said, well, I forgot the word that you used, but there really is no medical reason at all to do it. 
it only creates problems. No, there's no medical uh, reason to do it. It, it, it creates a problem. It's just creating medical problem. Exactly. That's what the circumcision actually is. And here's the reason. If you ever ask uh, why the Somalis do this, you know, the Malaris who are advocating for circumcision would tell you that um, the, to circumcise the, the girl, you know, when she's young, uh, protects her from, from, uh, from, uh, uh, from sex outside of the marriage. Does that make any sense at all? Because it like it doesn't feel good. Is that why? Because they don't because it? they don't want you know girls to sleep with men before they get married. So to encourage that, they they have to circumcise the, the you know the girl so that they don't have a feelings for sex at all, because they get scared. You know she can't uh, sleep with a man. So that's one extremely, I would say, uh, horrible idea or justification or, you know, um, uh, to say like, you know, that's one of the reasons we do circumcision. But on top of that, there's also um, um, Islamic teaching, actually. Um, many people argue with this, but Islamic teaching encouraged women's circumcision. Okay. But uh, some countries today just do it. They don't cut everything, you know, but they just, you know, cut a tiny bit of it. It's just the same thing. Whereas some countries, they just decide to remove, every, you know, all the external stuff to make the place and they stitch it back together okay. it's horrible yeah and so Somali women do not have a, a strong voice oh no no Definitely. and and but this woman that we're meeting tonight um, you've been saying she's a pretty controversial figure she's had people after her because she's very assertive she's putting her voice out there I'm assuming she's not in support of things like female genital mutilation um, I would I would leave this to her I mean we I, I can't speak for her I mean I never met her um, so I would say we could talk to her tonight right know? we are talking to her and we are recording it um, and if, if I get everybody's permission it will be part of the podcast mm -hmm. um, so we so we can we don't have to talk about that right now um, I have no idea what time it is. We've been talking for, uh, what is, how long have we been talking, John? Are you good, man? You good? Okay. We're coming up 25 past one. Got book signing in, what, signing in just over half hour. Perfect. Then, I mean, because I have so many things I would love to talk to you about. Um, there's... Do you want some water, guys? Yeah, we can refresh it. Yeah, yeah, I would love a coffee. Water. water. Do you have any coffee brewed? No. Okay, well, yeah, I see I'm the pot over there. Just... I'm going to get some. No, 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 no. no. I'm getting some. I'm getting All some. right, okay. Um, so, Abdi. Are we on a break or? Uh, do you need to stop and... Uh, yeah, like two minutes or so. It's an important phone call? Like a minute. No, it's not a phone call. It's just me drinking water. Okay, then we're just pausing. Um, uh, to oh, our live audience, we're still streaming live, I believe. I'm speaking to Abdi Noor Ifton. Uh, his new book is called Call Me American. Um, I found his story listening to This American Life. They, they devoted their entire episode to him and they, they rebroadcast it, I think you said twice now. Mm -hmm. um, and so you're gaining a lot of uh, publicity and attention from that. Um, this is your first time in Arizona though. It is, yeah. And it's so great to have you here. Oh, thank you. Um, and you did make it to the West Coast, but just Portland, Oregon so far. Yep. And you, de you have upcoming... Is there anything that you can promote? Um, you you are going to Seattle and Minneapolis. Do do you have those dates locked in yet? Yeah, um, Minnesota will be uh, from the 17th to the 20th, and then uh, Seattle to the 22nd. That's great. Do you know the locations? 
off the top of your head or any I, I don't place but where... people uh, people can find it online um, the you know you can you can go to my publishers website you can uh, uh, kind of venue find find the venues for for the book talks in Seattle and Minnesota okay um, so at one point in the book you mentioned the Sufi community um, in Somalia and and that caught my attention. Um, I know very little, but there is a Sufi community here outside of Silver City, New Mexico that I've been able to visit. Um, and they're very peaceful people. Um, they're a sect of uh, Islam that often, um, it's, I, I, well, I kind of wrote down a couple things. Well, the dervishes in Turkey, those are Sufis. The most um, famous one, probably in the West, is Rumi, because you just always see Rumi quotes. Mm -hmm. Um, and, but you yourself describe them as gentle people in the book. Um, and, but what happens to the Sufis in Somalia? Why were they driven out? I mean, they are part of Islam. What happens? Um, what happens is the, uh, the Wahhabis uh, version of Islam takes over. And this is the Saudi Arabian version of Islam. It's, uh, it's extremely radical and extremely anti-music, uh, anti-chants, anti um the you know peace like the the way they rule is to just create destruction and and scare people to their death so that they can rule and the sufis don't care again they can you know fight or or just do anything so basically what happened was um and, but not only were they driven out, I mean, their temples were destroyed. I mean, this was part of Somali culture mm -hmm. for, I imagine, a long time. And is there anything left? Is there a, a trace, you know, at all um, of other groups other than these, these more radical, um, you know, Islamists? Well, Sufis are there. Um, they, didn't, they didn't all die. Okay. You know, they, they, they didn't all die. They're out there and they're, they're just waiting for their perfect opportunity to, to return. Okay. Just come back, yeah. Okay. Things have been slowly changing in Mogadishu. I was just reading an article recently from the past couple of months that um, um, Catholics uh, have returned. They're small little, you know, groups. Um, I don't know if you know that they're, if they're meeting in that big cathedral, cathedral that was destroyed in Mogadishu, but, I mean, there are small pockets of other culture, you know, other belief systems um, in, in Somalia. Um, you yourself, um, when talking about your future plans, even have said yourself that you may return to Somalia with the knowledge that you have and your education mm -hmm. and your determination to help um, may even uh, involve yourself in politics of the future in Somalia. Mm -hmm. um, are things getting any better? Um, and what needs to change to, for things to get a lot better? Um, uh, <laughs> but things are not really getting better. Things are, the way I see it, things are really getting worse. Okay. You know, we have, Somalia has shifted from a warlord into an Islamic state, and now we're moving from the Islamic stage into a, um, a tribal, extremely like tribal wars that are happening in Somalia. And I will tell you why. So to where we are today, there are, um, let me think about this, there are um, six presidents that are in Somalia, six presidents in one country. Mm -hmm. um, mm. So there's one uh, federal republic, 
Somalia and and this is well, there's one president who was elected by members of parliament of course Somalia has a parliament now um, unfortunately the central government that's out there cannot even you know rule one street of, of the city they can, they don't have that power so power lies in the hands of the warlords so the warlords had built their own towns and neighborhoods and they self-nominated themselves as presidents of that area. And I will give you an example. There's a Somaliland, a large part, a large chunk of Somalia, up on the north, um, they have a president and his name is Mosabihi. So they call him president. Mm -hmm. And that guy does not recognize the central uh, government is president, that it, that's in Mogadishu. And then next to that uh, guy, Mosabihi, the president, is another place called Puntland. And they have their own president, and his name is called Abdulwali. And next to that guy, uh, the, the area that he runs, because that's his tribe, so he's present for his tribe, and that other guy is present for his tribe. And then, you know, we're coming down to the south of Somalia, and there's a place called Galmuduk, and they have their own president, and they're just a tribe. So you're coming to Mogadishu, and Mogadishu has president, and it's the president that was elected by the parliament. So, extremely. Would you say it's the official president, or is that kind of a stretch to even say that? No, I would say this, uh, I don't know how you define official, because like, uh, he's in Mogadishu, and, but he's the, he's the president recognized by everyone else. And when I say everyone else, I mean the United States, the European Union, okay. the United Nations, you know, he's, he's the one that's recognized. But the fact that he cannot be a president in his own country, like he can't be a president in Somaliland, that, you know, kind of gives the United States, say like, well, we recognize you, but that we don't. Yeah. Because you're president, but you, you don't have any land at all. You know, like where, like one street, two streets, that's not, you know, you can't be a president like that. Well, it's just like saying Donald Trump is the president of Washington, D.C. Arizona, Maine, California, New York, you know, they, they have their own presidents. Let's say turn all the, all the governors into presidents. And then that means Trump may not be able to come to Maine because the president of Maine says no. So that's yeah. where we, yeah, yeah. that's where we are in. today. So yeah. we're actually a divided nation that is completely going to somehow in the future, um, you know, create junks of countries within one country. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, on top of that, there's the ordinary people like my mother. She's living out there six presidents on top of her head, you know, um, she's a Rahan Wayne, um, and she's just, I'm, I'm her son, I'm the only one who's supporting her, uh, where she lives, she can't get water, she can't get, um, she can't get clean water, um, no power or electricity, she can't get this, you know, the, the most important thing in, 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 in the life of our human beings is safety. And she was, um, you talk about in the book, she was almost, um, kind of, well, she was happy, um, and I, I believe it's the early 2000s, um, a group called the ICU, they were radical Islamics, uh, Islamists, kind of took over Mogadishu and kind of put an end to a lot of the, the warfare from the militiamen and fighting clans, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And kind of tried to unite uh, Mogadishu, but under very strict Sharia law. Mm -hmm. um, so can you talk about that transition, how people like your mother were happy uh, and why, and why you were terrified when that happened? Um, so, 
my mother is just, you know, she's just a Somali. She has no expectations in America or anything like that. Um, she had, she found peace um, under the, the flag of Al-Shabaab, the ICU. It's just a something. ICU came first and then Al-Shabaab was born out of it. Um, she found peace. She found that she can leave her business and come back because these guys were everywhere and they kicked out all the bad militias. Because no one was allowed in the streets at night. No one, was, no one was allowed on the streets at night. And also the, the radical Islam, Islamists that came, they were not chewing, they were not chewing cut. Mm -hmm. So they were not stimulant. They were not using any drugs. They didn't smoke, they didn't use any, any sort of drugs that you can think of. They ate healthy food. Mm. Interestingly enough, yeah, they woke up every morning and they like to eat good meat and for breakfast and move on and then they're younger guys, 15, you know, 12 years old, they got free wives because you can like pinpoint one woman on the street, you can say like, I love her, you know, and then the, uh, the militia leader, you know, the Al-Shabaab leader could easily say like, I'm going to pay for all of them, you know, just take her, she's yours. So. I, I think some of the things that surprised my mother was just like, these are the type of guys that I want. No drags, they're not killing me, they're securing the area, they kicked out the bad guys. But the thing that I hated about them was that they brought to us a radicalized version of Islam yeah. from Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan, Pakistan, wherever, you know, and things have been really so bad over there. And they introduced a it introduced a roadside bomb uh, and, and a suicide uh, vest and all the things that never exist. The Sufis, the Sufi Islam never did that. So Al-Shabaab brought this to us from whatever training they had in, in the Middle East. They, they brought it. Okay. And it, you know, and then it became, you know, they like, and it, they, they couldn't like the hairstyle, you know, they couldn't like the way I dressed. Everything that kind of kept you going. Yes. They were trying to take away from you. You couldn't right. listen to music. Right. There were no images, Western images at all allowed, except for the money that was being used. It was That's U.S. True. money flowing into, you know, right. to Somalia at the time. Right. Um, if you don't mind, just um, to kind of fill in our listeners on how bad it got at that point, mm -hmm. you, you had a girlfriend at the time, or maybe you, you never considered her your girlfriend. Her name was... Is Faisa, is that correct? Faisa, yep. And there's a point in the book where um, you just wanted to walk in the street with her and go to the beach. Do you mind, I know it might be a hard story to tell, but can you tell that story um, of just being seen with a, a single woman at that time in Somalia and what ended up happening? Well, I mean, first of all, I uh, fell in love with her uh, basically because um, she came to she came to a wedding party where I was the dancer. Where you were still allowed to and, dance. Yeah, and I was the DJ, of course. I had a uh, big uh, boom box and uh, the way I was dressed. So um, to me, it was, it was extremely touching to see a woman who was smiling and who was accepting my culture, you know? Um, and her own sister was just spitting at me, saying like, this is horrible, you know? And I asked Faiza if she wanted to dance and she was just Gorgeous. You know, she had hannas on her hand and, you know, she seemed really dressed so nice with her bright yellow orange thing. Um, so, um, and, you know, and, and I just fell in love with her. So I truly, truly wanted her to be my, my girlfriend and she, of course, was my girlfriend. 
uh, even though we never had the freedom to meet, yeah, in a, you know, on our own uh, will. Um, so it was just like a hide and seek game with her dad. You know, whenever I felt like he was not around, I would go with her, and and you know that one day when Al Shabab came and took the city, and I was still naive, and I was like, what, what, you know, will they be okay with my girlfriend? I wasn't quite sure. So I walked with Faiza to the beach, and while she and I were just playing and throwing, you know, some water to each other's face, you know, we realized that we were in danger uh, because the people, the women were not, you know, in Somalia, women don't go to the ocean. Uh, so the people around somehow ran up and called a group of Al-Shabaab, and they said, there's a woman in the beach, and she's with a man. So they came and beat us so, really, so bad. I think you said you were whipped, like, right at, on the spot. Oh, yeah, yeah, they kicked me as well, you know. And kicked, kicked you. Kicked me as well. It's just, it's just they, you know, they were against the love. Um, that was the last time I ever saw her. Um, they took her out. Um, they called me, and they said, we need to rehabilitate you, because they thought I was an idiot. You know, I thought, they thought I was, you know, out of the cultural aspects of Somali and you know and they were uh, they 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 said come to the trainings tomorrow and they wanted to somehow do uh, some sort of radicalization process on me and then I skipped and never showed up and, and ever since I was scared to death you know every single second um, it was hard yeah but part of your punishment well you both were sentenced to like 20 lashes 40 lashes I forgot how many mm -hmm. you said um, but you also, there was a point where you were taken in to this open area um, with a lot of other men who may have done similar, um, you know, uh, mistakes that you did, taking her to the beach. Mm. Um, and you were shown a man, he was strapped down, right? Um, do you mind going into details? I mean, I can say them if, they're hard, if it's hard to even like think about the, that. That's no, time, but. so yeah, I mean, it's it's basically um, from from that day on, you know, I just um, they uh, they turned soccer fields into a torture field. So soccer wasn't you weren't allowed to play soccer. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. they they came to the soccer field and they brought a, a a a some sort of a table that's made of metal, and and then that one day where they got the guy, the guy stole something or you know he, he stole, stole something. something. Okay. So they cut his head in front of my eyes. Um, Did you say hand or head? Hand. And then another day they cut his head and they called us all. Like, what's a huge problem? So when they do that sort of a thing, decapitation or cutting somebody's hand, they want everyone to watch. And to the, scare the shit out of you. To, to scare the shit out of you, that's right. So that you don't have to do anything. And that's, that's been successful for them, I think, because so many young men, you know, just watched that and they said, I'm scared to death, so I think this is the only way out. Just be be part of them, you know, be one of them. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, so it's been really hard. That was my one of my really hardest days in, in my life because it would it would have been I could have been easily killed for not accepting them. Um, I was also, you know, part of the first day recruitment one day when I visited my mom and they called us under the tree and this guy was teaching us how to shoot non-Muslims, you know, first shoot in the head, second shoot in the in the chest and then be there until they stop breathing. And I was like, really, you know? And of course, so many guys were okay with it. They went into a war and they've all been killed. They've all, yeah, they don't, yeah. they're not. They didn't make it, I'm 100% sure. Like, my classmate didn't make it, Mokhtar. Yeah. He called himself a Puji head. And, okay, and um, so I can't even wrap my head around the amount of courage that 
you needed to resist all that and you know do anything that you you could to to escape um i wrote down a page and i have your book here i don't have the cover unfortunately because i always just end up ripping them um but this is your book do we have any oh, well carol from books and music hasn't shown up yet so we don't have any here is the book without the cover do you, um, if you want one i have mine oh, okay you have a copy well yeah there we go okay so this is the flyer for the show there's uh, Abdi's book there. And that's me. <laughs> there we go. And so I want to go to page 225 real quick. I mean, because I'm like up to this point, reading your story, there's like nothing but courage, nothing but um, just like this mentality that I, you know, I'm never giving up. I know that this is what's happening here is not right and mm -hmm. what i in my head is right i need to get out of here um but never did you kind of put yourself down or um kind of i don't know even put the somali people down um but there's there's a there's a point when once you're in kenya you end up um working with some americans these young nursing students um, and you go to rural communities in Kenya, and it was something to do with medicine, like, you know, medical care, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and you were part of the group helping them. And a lot of those people thought that you were from the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, and I think also this may be the only time where you, you lie in the book. You may have lied to, like, save your life, mm -hmm. like on a bus or something, saying, you know, um, I'm not who you think I am or something. But... There's a there's a there's a passage here where you um, where you lie to them and tell them that you're from the U.S. Mm -hmm. because your English you know is, is it, it, it they couldn't tell that you were from Somalia mm -hmm. they thought you're from the U.S. Mm -hmm. and you lied to them and you said I was ashamed of at having lied but I was so happy to be around all those Americans that I couldn't bear to admit to him that I was in fact one of life's losers a lowly Somali refugee and. Like up to this point, I was really surprised to to hear you call yourself that. Um, and so can you just talk about, were you putting yourself down or did you, like what interpretation of loser did you do you mean there exactly? Because you're such a, the opposite of a loser, you know, like everything in your life that you've done is, you know, you accomplished and you've succeeded. Yeah, um, so, well, first, first thing uh, to to respond to that question is, uh, <laughs> I, you know, sometimes lies save us. You know, you have to lie to save your life. Yeah. Um, These uh, American nurses that were studying at UMass uh, in Boston, uh, they came all the way from the U.S. to Kenya, and Tim Abdi, you know, put in touch. You know, and they said, uh, "Why don't you help these two refugees?" You know, it's my brother and I. Uh, and that was the that was like the vacation time for us, you know, to get out of our apartment and get in a bus with yeah, white people. Sure, it was great. It saved us because the cops could not rob us. Yes, yeah. you know, there are Americans in the area, and uh, they could report this. You know, or, you know, they could do something. So I felt a complete safety around myself with this, but then. I had I had no idea how to interact with it with a regular ordinary Kenyan. You had no idea how to interact. You said. Yeah, like mm -hmm. if I said uh, I was a refugee in Kenya, they would automatically assume Al Shabaab. 
yeah what is he doing here you know and then it could create some sort of tension so i was avoiding the tension of that you know and i said i'm from america and somehow you know it's not a lie it's just being like you know when as a teenager i told my friends call me american yeah you know abdi american Amer abdi american nickname. so i was not really basically american so that was part of me still at the age of uh, 23 years old uh 24 5 in kenya when these nurses kept coming back for three years and we went with them and all the time i was american you know but once they the project ended they had to fly back to the u.s my brother and i would go with them to the airport and just wait and cry and come back into the uh, dark apartment and continued our life there. Yeah. Yeah. So but I'm sure in your mind, you're not, I mean, you're just from knowing you, you, you know, you don't say America winners, Somali losers, you know? Yeah. Um, um yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I hate to call myself a loser or anybody else. It just depends on how you, you know, how you really do things. But at the time to me, um, Everything about America was a win, you know, everything about America was just great and, and amazing. So I say, uh, you know, it, it was, you know, sometimes it's just like a feeling when you're so hungry and someone brings food on the table and you try to eat and then they take it back. You know, that sort of a feeling where like, where you feel like, oh no, you know, so yeah, that kind of had that sort of a feeling. So that's, that's why I used the, the word. Loser. Okay, because you, you think maybe in their minds they would think that you were a loser. Um, I'm not quite sure what's in their minds. I mean, it, you know, they, they, they were interesting, they asked questions, you know, they... They're very accepting of you. They were very accepting with me and, you know, they uh, they just asked questions like, what's the life here? And then I, we talked about it, we talked about everything that we do and they were so... We, they become friends with me. Yeah. yeah. Some of them were from Maine and the first time I came they invited me to a long drive to Canada and just to show me around. And I mentioned That's that great. in my book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I know that you've you've been uh, you've had a lot of good experiences being here four or five years. Um, and I'm sure it's not exactly what you thought America was going to be, but I, I really am glad that you're here and uh, I'm glad I hope that you're having you. a great life here. And there's going to be so much that you can do uh, within our country and around mm -hmm. the world. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is just the start of God knows, you know, like the, right. <laughs> the big plans of your life. Right. Um, I'm speaking with Abdi Noor Ifton. His book is called Call Me American. And it's right about two o'clock, which is when we were going to start our book signing and, and Q&A. Uh, people are, are coming in and you wrote, um, what is this? Okay, okay. <laughs> and I'm making it as natural as possible to, to transition into this. Um, I do have Ben and Josh, or, and John here um, from Biz Beans and Rice. We're recording in their space right on Main Street, 24 Main Street, right in downtown Bisbee, lovely Bisbee, Arizona. There is a lot happening in town today. The Blues Festival. The Blues Festival is happening as well today. Um, so what do you guys want to do? We can wrap up, you know, this type of interview. Yeah, do you want to keep recording? Um, well, I mean, you might want to break off camera for a couple of minutes mm -hmm. and uh, grab some water, have something to drink and say hi to people and then we'll, you and I will talk, Mike. But I'm sure Abdi has got to get out from the lights. He must be sweating, man. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. Um, from everybody online who can't say thanks, this was really great. We have people tuning in for the whole, what, couple of hours. That's so great. It's wonderful. 
Great, thank you. And so this is a collaboration with Bisbee Books and Music, uh, Bisbee Beans and uh, Bisbee Beans and Rice, and I'm Mike Butler from Bisbee Live. I'm sitting down with Abdi Noor Iftin and uh, Mama Malyun, and uh, my podcast listeners probably know I brought Abdi Noor Iftin into uh, Arizona for a quick little book tour in Tucson and Bisbee. Uh, we just wrapped up today in Bisbee. It was a great event at the Bisbeans and Rice space. Um, and uh, we've reached out to uh, Mama Mil Yoon here in Phoenix area. And I will admit, I'm just learning about uh, your life and your experience. Um, you just showed me you have your own, your own YouTube show. Is it a YouTube show? Right. Um, and over well over a hundred thousand subscribers um, and uh, you yourself speak Somali on the YouTube show um, and I've been learning from Abdi that you're considered quite outspoken for a Somali woman and I've been learning a lot from Abdi um, about how a lot of Somali women don't feel like they have a voice especially especially in the media, you know, social media, whatever it is. Uh, so what drove you to want to be the voice of, of Somali women? Uh, so one of the reasons that uh, got me doing this type of thing was that because uh, I was an inventive person. I created my own business activities. I drove a school bus at some point. I drove a limousine. And I was just someone who came up with ideas and this business ideas that kind of came up to my mind. So despite the fact that uh, I have been through a tough time in the past and then moving into a country like this in the West where I could feel like things could change and then years after my arrival in the United States, I realized that things haven't been changing. Hmm. So the feelings and the uh, abuse, whatever was happening, was still around the area. And that got me thinking it's the right time to speak up and do something. Okay. Uh, I saw a story of a, of a Somali woman who lives in the United Kingdom who, who had uh, really, really complained about uh, marriage, marriage issues uh, of, of her own. Um, and then I realized that she was just 10 years and I have been uh, ha having the same feeling for over 30 years. Mm. And that got me feeling like, okay, there's so many of us out there and I think it's the right time to step in. Yeah, you have even more to say, more years of experience with the same issues. Mm. So it was the kind of day where, you know, because of the things that happened, um, I shaved my hair, my my head bald, completely bald. Um, so at that point, that's the same day when I had had seen the video clip of the woman. Uh, was that out of some sort of protest of? Uh, yeah, it was a protest. I was helpless. I didn't have anybody to talk to. Mm -hmm. Uh, the reason I, I shaved my head at the time was uh, how the disconnection 
among the family members, you know, my own kids that were not really communicating that well, my own family. And, and I decided, like, you know, life is hard. So I went, I went ahead and tried to shave my head bald. Okay. Um, so that day when I spoke up against, you know, uh, parallel to the other video of the other women, I felt comfortable, I felt at peace and relaxed at some point, but also there was so much pressure that I had faced because of that video that I posted. Okay. So, so much abuses had, had uh, come my way ever since. Uh, someone had actually blew out all the tires of my car, uh, and another one had sent a restraint order. And this uh, is in response to the videos that you were posting. Uh, yes. Yeah, it was the content of the video, which actually I spoke about uh, the abuses that happened to me as a child. Just age, being outspoken about sexual at abuse. At the age of six, yes. And then mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the people who, were, who heard my story, they had completely photoshopped my picture by putting the cross... Um, Jane kind of thing, the Christianity uh, sign um, on me by mm. saying that, oh, she had converted. She no, she's no longer um, a Muslim, so she had converted a Christian. Okay. But these things that you were saying were important because a lot of women in your culture don't say anything about it and no one ever, no one know, knows and certainly no one is getting punished for it. <laughs> So ever since I, I became the kind of celebrity, you know, I spoke about and told the stories of abuses and stuff like that of my own, uh, so, you know, people have got the courage to speak up. So there was a Somali transgender, transgender who came forward. Transgender? Somali transgender? Yeah, okay. Came forward and actually... Um, you know, described who they were. And recently, there was a woman who mentioned that her, her husband was gay mm. and she found him, you know, having sex with another, another man. Yeah. So she, uh, Malun is saying that uh, she had been blamed for all of this craziness that, you know, people are trying mm. to say. That, you know, everyone is saying, because she's responsible. She like a scapegoat. This, yeah. Do you know that expression? She became the scapegoat, exactly. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that's why we were so worried. Had less than three months and they're going to mm. that. So I moved into this apartment. Uh, this one. Yes, July first uh, this year. So almost three years, three months ago. Sorry. Mm -hmm. um, and the first people that I invite here, besides myself and my my child, is the two of us. You, oh. You and Nobody me. Yes. Nobody else. Can. Oh well, I feel honored. <laughs> okay, and is this part of your show, though? Do you ha have guests, and would you have guests when you're in, um, can I say, Minnesota? Is it okay? Minnesota, I'm going to talk to you about the video, and I'm going to talk to you about the video. Even in Minnesota, it was a, it was a pretty isolated uh, apartment. You know, I didn't let many people come mm -hmm. in. You know, sometimes there were just two women that um, actually were also abused themselves uh, because of their uh, uh, stories that they had uh, spoken about. Yeah. Well, I, I learned from Abdi that, you know, there's a pretty big Somali um, uh, population in Minnesota. Um, and did you have a lot of people in Minnesota reaching out to you 
whether they were doing the um, the show or not, um, wanting advice or just saying thank you, Somali women in particular. Right. So uh, yeah, there's there's so many you know supporters and fans that actually are encouraging the thing, but there are also other people who support the job and the, the you know the presentations that she, she's doing herself and speaking up about those stories, but they cannot show that you know the, the funds the supporters they can't show how much they appreciate and, and you know and understand so at some point they're still oppressed they can't speak up about their opinion they're afraid of what would happen to them yeah what would happen to them men and women yeah <clears throat> um her videos are viral not only in the united states but in africa in asia and europe is actually the largest uh viewers that she has um, the Somali refugees and, and immigrants that are that are in Europe, okay, and the United States as well. Yeah. So her funds are all over the place. Okay, and so you speak out um, about women's rights. You're you're an advocate. Um, Abdi described you as a feminist, um, and you know, in English and in, in Western culture, I define a feminist as a person who is trying to create awareness through women's issues in order to create equality um, amongst the sexes. Um, and is this how you would describe your belief system regarding gender or sex? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, to me, the, um, the vision that I have for the future is for our women who are actually way less than you know the equality of other women today. It's, I'm not trying to bring women above men. So, mm -hmm. like, we have issues, uh, internal issues with, with our moment. For example, we have the uh, female genital mutilation yeah. that we do to our daughters. So that type of practice and the way we look down on women and that we think that they can't do anything. So I'm, an, I'm a fem feminist, and the reason I'm a feminist is to just bring the rights of women up equal to everybody else yeah. in the world. Yeah, which I, be and which I truly believe is what how everyone should view feminism. It's not, you know, some sort of overpowering thing that women want to be, you know, taking over the world. It's just creating awareness of the inequality. Mm -hmm. um, and so could we talk about the female genital mutilation just a little bit? Um, because, I mean, this is an opportunity to have your thoughts and opinions uh, heard by an English-speaking audience. Um, Abdi and I talked about um, this practice today in our interview because he also mentions it in his book. Um, what can be done to prevent this from hap happening? Mm -hmm. So, well, first of all, the uh, female genital mutilation is not something that's written in the Quran. So it's a practice a cultural practice that actually comes from uh, the age of Pharaoh. Um, okay. So, and then it became something uh, prevalent within the communities. So it feels like we have issues where the culture goes above the religion and the faith. Mm. Um, so I, I, for example, had been, uh, I went through this process of, uh, of the FGM and the person who had done the exercise on me, who did the, you know, uh, uh, 
the mutilation on me. Yeah. Um, they were not professional. They had not been trained to do this. They had dirty hands, oh. and they're you know they're 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 not they were not prepared for this. They didn't have any gloves on them. So at some point they just came down and take you know started taking off everything else. So I was pretty you know uh, uh, they haven't used a, any um, numbing uh, injections or or anything like that. So it's been extremely painful. Uh, ever since, or d- did this cause problems for a very long time? Because yeah, it's extremely excruciatingly painful. Um, for example, you know, when when the practice happens, it's it never heals, you know, never. For example, mm. you know, it's it's uh, when the monthly menstruation period, yeah. uh, it's so hard. You know, it doesn't come out because the whole thing is just stitched together. Okay. Um, and then, you know, at the same time, we're not protected. We're women. We're vulnerable. Men can come and rape us anytime that they want. And once that happens, we, we, we have issues. We have problems because we've already been, you know, went through this process and we haven't healed. And man doesn't really care about that. So when they rape, they just don't look at those issues. Okay. So this is something that, I mean, culturally, it's... It's, it borders on something that can be considered culturally significant, but also like like a, I mean, I, maybe it's dramatic to say a human well, it's a human rights issue. I would I would imagine because women don't have a, a say in this. It happens to them. It's not by choice. Um, and he, so even if we spread awareness of the issue to women, if they still don't have the right to stop it from happening. Then it's still going to happen. Right, right, right. Well, first of all, I am someone who speaks uh, with no fear. I don't, I don't have any regrets in me. I just say things the way they come naturally. I don't edit it. Um, so basically, when I was one years old, uh, my mom and my dad divorced. So mm-hmm. I really had a rough childhood. Um, and then the, there's three three types of people that I speak for. The first one is the children. Second one is the victims, the, any, any type of victim. And the third one is a woman. You know, children that just like myself, when, you know, my mom kind of threw me off to, to my dad, and then it all started, and I laid outside, you know, excru- excruciatingly screaming um, with so much pain. And then there are victims out there that just need to be given a voice. And I became, I happen to be the voice. Okay. Um, and there's the woman, and women have so many issues. They get raped. Um, they circumcised. and and the, the FGM, and they also you know got mutilated. Um, and the divorce. The divorce is another case which just became very simple, pretty simple. You know, someone can text you to divorce you. Okay, in Somalia, Somalia, because uh, here too. Well, uh, besides the the um, circumcision, uh, divorce, the easy divorce, and uh, rape is prevalent here in the United States as well. Okay, um, I mean, because I know there's like you know paperwork involved in a, an official divorce process. All right, so are we talking about like under the um, the eyes of the U.S. government? No, 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 no. We're not. 
No, no, it's, it's, it's not that paperwork type, yeah, of, type yeah. of divorce. Okay. It's just like we get married based on the culture and religion, mm -hmm. and then it's easy to get away. So it's not based on the American way system. Of, so once she can easily get married and divorce, and she has no rights at all. Okay. She's kids. And this has happened to you how many times in your life? 15 times. I got married 15 times. And three times I was raped. So all that abuse that I had been through, the three rapes, the divorce and everything else, that's nothing compared to the abuses and the um, um, harassment that I face today by people who are saying, why are you saying this? Why are you doing this? Okay. It's intolerable. And was your decision to move to Phoenix? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I was uh, scared for my life. And that's one of the reasons that I escaped here. Because I drove, I drove U-Haul all the way here. Loaded, loaded the U-Haul and then came here. And is it because there's a, a smaller Somali population here, so fewer people who might come after you? Yeah, I actually don't want to interact with this. Yeah, so I don't want to interact with the Somalis. They're they're mostly you know easily frustrated. Someone like Abdi who can understand my stories, I could hang out with him. So one of the reasons I came here is just the shortage. Uh, they only few number of Somalis that are here. Okay. But also, uh, she mentioned that California is closest and it's also warm. So sometimes, somehow, if she really becomes more successful, she could move into big cities. Oh, California is close, closer. Closer. Yeah, yeah, you're closer to California. Cities. Yep. And it sure is warm here. Has it been hard to adjust? I mean, well, coming from Somalia, that's a warmer country. And then spending many years in Minnesota. And you've only been here a couple months. Has it been hard to adjust to the heat again? I used to live here a long time ago. I worked oh. in Trine Style Company. What's the name of the company? Trine Style. Trine. Trine. Trine Style. Uh, okay. Okay. Company. Yeah. I, worked, yeah. I used to live here one year and drive in Lemo. Okay. <coughs> it's a decent place to be. My parents live here. Yeah. <laughs> in the area. Um, well, we have to go do life. Sure. Else, yeah. So. Okay. Well, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Is there anything that we could end with um, now that you, you have this opportunity to, to speak to my audience, uh, an English-speaking audience, maybe what my listeners could do to help? Is there any website, um, maybe some sort of groups that are um, trying to uh, prevent this female genital mutilation from happening? Um, is there a way to like fund that, you know, more support for for those groups in any way limited liability company okay there was a uh, an investigative journalist from from the united kingdom who had actually exposed a um rape that somali men do uh, by using american passports they moved to Kenya, you know, during the summer times or winter times, and they just marry women and divorce them within a few weeks and come back to the United States. So he did some sort of uh, investigation and, and, and uncovered it. And Malun was, was part of part of that, uh, promoting. 
So that's what happened. That's that's. That's what they did. The guys who came, who went back and, and made the woman suffer. So basically, they're using the power of the passport and they're using the power of which country they're coming from. And okay. They went there and you know can can had sex with the woman, mm-hmm. and by telling them that they're gonna marry them and just give them few cash, um, they made them pregnant and returned to this country and completely ignoring them forever. And this has been going on for years. So thanks to her and thanks to this journal, thanks to this journalist, uh, Jamal, um, uh, who works for Journal 4. So the two of them actually kind of exposed this whole uh, deception by men who go back and do this stuff. And these are all Somali men. Okay. So all the victims now, they're contacting her. Because she speaks up for them. They're yeah. contacting her for ideas. So that's one of the things. There's a Dumerlang group that uh, she and other... Sarah Ali. Sarah Ali and the president of the Dumerlang. Yeah. Um, um, the, Dumer, Dumer, the word Dumer means women. women. Okay. So it's women's land. You know, It's a group that's really doing a great job and needs to uh, fund you. Yeah. They, they need a lot of things. And so she, um, yeah, yeah, they, they need uh, lots of uh, different types of support, actually. They need people to listen to, they need uh, the material contribution, they need a monetary contribution uh, from people, they need an audience, you know, uh, that is ready to listen and understand this sort of movement that had actually begun. So it's, it's an extremely uh, important movement uh, for the Somali women. Okay, perfect. And can you say the name of it again and maybe the website? Uh, Dumerland.org. So, website, Melina? Okay, it's Dumerland. It's a Facebook page. It's a Facebook page. Yeah. And can D-U- you spell... D-U-M-A-R. D-U-M-A-R. L-A-N-D. L-A-N-D. Yeah. And that's a Facebook page that people can find. Okay. Well, that's perfect. That's a good way to end it. Oh, yeah. And I just want to say one more thing. I'm glad that I, I was uh, able to witness both of you meet because I feel like together you know that can be you know a powerful duo for you know, know for the community she's, she's so celebrity she's amazing you know, yeah it's so honor to meet her actually yeah. he's very smart guy a very yeah. smart guy yeah that's why i believe in uh, you come in my home other people i don't like it they come in my home. well i'm glad that i'm part of all this so thank you so much thank you, thank you. Right. we're gonna go live for a little yeah. bit Thanks for listening. Uh, This was uh, definitely my longest podcast release and probably will be my last release for a while. Uh, If it wasn't clear, that was Abdi's voice speaking as Mama Malyoon as she does not speak English very well. I'm going to have links to uh, an organization that is in Somalia helping women and trying to uh, be a voice and... and, uh, raise awareness of uh, women's rights issues. That website is gecpdsomalia.org. That is gecpdsomalia.org. I'm going to have uh, the link, including a link to Abdi's book and where you can find it at bisbeelive.com. Thanks again for listening. If you want to show your support, please reach out to me at bisbeelive at gmail.com. Perhaps the podcast will keep going. Perhaps it will be uh, reformatted. 
And uh, so I'd love to hear some feedback. And uh, I'd love to just hear from the community or the whole world. Wherever you are, just reach out to me, bisbylive at gmail.com. Go to bisbylive.com. Again, if you are interested in anything that we were talking about today during this interview, I'll include uh, some sort of video, too, perhaps of Mama Malyun or of uh, Abdi or both. He has done many great interviews uh, promoting his book, Call Me American. Go pick up a copy of it today. This is Mike Butler signing off.